When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, welcome, one and all, to The Late Show. I'm your host, Stephen Colbert. Folks, five weeks? Five weeks tonight. Tonight, tonight marks five weeks since the start of Russia's failed invasion of Ukraine. Now, remember, the so-called military experts, not just here, but around the world, all predicted that Putin's forces would conquer Kyiv in less than three days. And there are a lot of reasons that it's going so terribly. They, uh, the Russian troops, they have no clear purpose. Uh, the troops are running out of food. And it turns out they have really bad technology. For instance, while most modern military radios are impossible to intercept, many Russian forces are communicating on unencrypted high-frequency channels that allow anyone with a ham radio <laughs> to eavesdrop. <laughs> to which Russian soldiers said, a radio made of ham? Can I have one? I'm so hungry. <laughs> we just... I have a... Now, uh, Russia's walkie-talkies are being bombarded with heavy metal music (laughs) from Ukrainian operators. Okay, that's not bad, heavy metal. But if Ukraine really wants to mess with Russian soldiers, they should flood their walkie-talkies with an unbearably long podcast. (laughs) Ugh, it's been two hours, and Mark Maron is still talking about his SNL audition. (laughs) What the hell is a MailChimp? What is this MailChimp? WTF! But uh, Vladimir Putin may not be aware of just how bad his invasion is going because new intelligence suggests that Putin's advisors misinformed him on Ukraine. Well, Putin's clearly a victim of his own pro-Russian propaganda. I mean, he doesn't even know that Russia lost Rocky IV. (laughs) Over there, over there... Over there, it's an eight-minute film called Ivan Drago Strong Good. <laughs> reportedly, thank you, reportedly, senior Russian officials are wary of delivering truthful assessments, potentially afraid that the messengers of bad news will be held responsible for the battlefield failures. Of course they're afraid to be honest. No matter what you say to a psychotic boss, you lose. Here, I'll show you. Hey, uh, Louis, yeah. uh, I, I've been offered uh, the role of Rigoletto, over at the Metropolitan Opera, do you think I have the pipes for it? Now, bear in mind, if you say I don't, I will throw you off the balcony. (laughs) But if you say I do, and then I embarrass myself over at the Met, I will throw you off the balcony. (laughs) So, be honest, what should I do? I think you should ask John when he gets back. (laughs) Good choice. That's... Good choice. And it's not just the war. Intelligence analysts also say that Putin has an incomplete understanding about how damaging Western sanctions have been on the Russian economy. Let's see if I can, if I can explain it to him. Vlad, um, uh, okay. If you're paying with rubles, you can cross toilet paper off your shopping list. 
Life, life is, is hard on everyday Russians. Putin has cracked down on independent and social media. For instance, Russia has blocked Instagram. Okay, it's one thing to take away free speech, govern through fear, and collapse a nation's economy. But no brunch grams? <laughs> that violates international law and the International House of Pancakes. That's Rudy Tootie. Fresh and screwy. Fresh and pooty? I don't know. This has been particularly tough on Russian influencers, many of whom posted videos of tearful goodbyes to their fans. Well, of course, the influencers are upset. Influencers have no other marketable skills. What are they gonna do? Go door to door to make people feel bad about not having a thigh gap? One, one. I don't, I don't know if I have that. Do I have a thigh gap? I don't know if I have a thigh gap. <laughs> One group of Russian programmers has come up with a solution. They are releasing a melancholy version of Instagram. <laughs> well, then they're going to get sued because a melancholy version of Instagram is already the slogan for LinkedIn. <laughs> I know. No email. Don't email me. Don't. Don't email me. This new Russian app is called Grusnogram, or in English, Sadgram. <laughs> Fits in with other great Russian social media sites like Why the Long Facebook <laughs> and TikTok Goes the Clock as Time Marches Forward, a difficult birth astride of a grave. <laughs> Speaking. <laughs> Sometimes sad is funny. <laughs> Speaking of sad, it has been four days since Will Smith shocked the world by assaulting Chris Rock on the Oscar stage, but you know, we should have seen this coming. He repeatedly warned us he's a bad boy for life. <laughs> but now, there, there, there could maybe possibly kind of be some consequences, and I'll bring you the latest in my hopefully not recurring segment, Getting Slappy With It. Yesterday, yesterday, it's got a hook. It's got a hook. <laughs> Yesterday, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences began disciplinary proceedings against Will Smith. Uh, but first, they put on a mouth guard and a cup, just in case. <laughs> after, after a board meeting, the Oscar bigwigs released a statement saying Smith had violated their code of conduct by engaging in inappropriate physical contact, abusive or threatening behavior, and compromising the integrity of the Academy. And it is so important to preserve the integrity of the Academy. <laughs> Roman Polanski! Roman! Roman Polanski! Sorry, I got a little... I got a little tickle... Okay. Tickle in my... Okay. Kevin Spacey! Kevin Spacey! <laughs> Harvey Weinstein! Harvey! Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> the slap, clap back started as soon as Palm hit face because yesterday the Academy revealed that Smith was asked to leave the show but refused to do so. Well, they probably probably just didn't have the right man on the job. Uncle Phil? So what do you think, Uncle Phil? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your service, Uncle Phil. Woo! Strong. That's <laughs> Now, not everyone agrees with the Academy's side of the story. Other attendees claim some Academy members expressed that they wanted Smith removed 
but no formal or explicit ask was ever made, and that actually a producer said that he and the production officially wanted Smith to stay for the remainder of the show because they needed him to get his Oscar in person. Otherwise, you gotta send up Rita Moreno to say, Will couldn't be here, and I'm honored to slap Chris Rock on his behalf. <laughs> and whatever, whatever really happened that night, and it's not what the Academy says, the Academy is now ready to dole out the pain. One board member summed up their thoughts saying, I think everyone unanimously feels what he did was out of control. People want real consequence. Oh, wow, real consequences. Which means they're gonna make Will Smith watch a double feature of Hitch and The Legend of Bagger Vance. <laughs> Staying, I know, I think, I think that violates the Geneva Convention. <laughs> Staying in the, uh, the world of media, you know I'm a company man. I love CBS, our parent company, Paramount, and its parent company, probably a defense contractor that makes boner pills. <laughs> There's no way of knowing. But I recently heard some office hot goss that has rocked my socks off. And I'll tell you all the deets in my first running segment, the CBS water cooler. Okay, who here is watching SWAT? We all are, Gluggy. <laughs> Recently, my network has gotten a lot of criticism, much of it from itself, because CBS News has hired the ex-president's former chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, to, quote, provide political analysis across the network's broadcasts and platforms. For more, we go to the Late Show's own media analyst, Stephen Colbert. Stephen, your thoughts? <laughs> what the... Back to you, Steve. <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. I, for one, can't wait to hear Mulvaney's trenchant and objective political analysis, considering that back in 2020, he suggested that coronavirus was the media hoax of the day. And after his boss extorted Zelensky for dirt on the Bidens, he said, get over it. And just days after the election, he announced, if he loses, the former president will concede gracefully, adding, he'll fight hard to make sure the results are fair, and in the end, he'll accept the result, whatever it is. Is Mick Mulvaney psychic? Get this man to Vegas. He's Nostra dumbass. So, obviously... <laughs> so, obviously, I'm just joking. But why would the Tiffany Network's venerable news division put this craven toady to a tyrant on their payroll? According to leaked audio, one exec said they wanted to make sure that we are getting access to both sides of the aisle is a priority, because we know the Republicans are going to take over, most likely, in the midterms. That's right. They're not just reporting the news anymore. They're predicting it now. And reworking our programming in the hopes of cozying up to the GOP. So get ready for our new spring lineup, Young Q Shaman, <laughs> Bob restricts the reproductive rights of Abishola, and Blue Bloods. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure this has all been tough on Mulvaney, and as a co-worker, I feel like it's my duty to make sure that he is portrayed fairly on this 
now his network. So joining us now, live via satellite from Washington, D.C., please welcome CBS News contributor Mick Mulvaney. See you at the Christmas party, Mick. We got a great show for you tonight. Up next, Great-ish Women of History with Jane Krakowski. Tonight, we got uh, just a, a delightful uh, performer, uh, a, a, real, a real superstar, James McAvoy, is here tonight. Yeah. We know him. We love him. He's doing, he's doing uh, Cyrano de Bergerac. Oh, nice. Folks, uh, today, of course, marks the end of Women's History Month, and it has been a big one. Confirmation hearings began for the very first black woman nominated to sit on the Supreme Court. She's gonna, it's going to be bipartisan. She's going to get bipartisan support. Not only that, not only that, but Congress renewed the Violence Against Women Act and expanded the protections, and Netflix released season two of Bridgerton. The stories may be fictional, but the butts are still very real. Of course, no Women's History Month would be complete without brands trying to use it for clout, and this year was no exception. For instance, chocolate brand Hershey hopped on the lady train by highlighting the central placement of the word she in its logo on limited-edition chocolate bars, which is way more tasteful than the ill-advised butt-her-finger. Not to be outdone, whatchamacallit will now be going by its proper name, the clitoris. <laughs> but... <laughs> but Women's History Month hasn't always been about big companies. In fact, the roots of Women's History Month, and this is true, go back to March 8, 1857, when women from various New York City factories staged a protest over poor working conditions. Now, we do not know the names of these heroic protesters, which brings up a sad truth about Women's History Month. So many historic women who deserve to be celebrated never get their time in the spotlight. Well, that ends tonight, because The Late Show is proud to present Jane Krakowski, an actual woman in history, who brings you this special message. Good evening. I'm Jane Krakowski. It's Women's History Month, and naturally, we're celebrating accomplished women like Amelia Earhart, Harriet Tubman, Marie Curie, and me, Jane Krakowski. Thank you. Please sit down. But unfortunately, by the time we finish covering all the greatest women, there's no time left to talk about everyone else. So tonight, we're celebrating all the women who deserve our praise, but up until now, haven't quite made the cut. This is Great-ish Women of History. August 1st, 1927, Laura Mazur becomes the first person in history to take off her bra through her sleeve. To this day, women across the world celebrate her innovation by taking off their bras and repeating her famous catchphrase. Oh. Thursday, 40,000 BC, Glurga invents the wheel. She invented all the other shapes too. After the wheel, she was just on a roll. 
May 27, 1598, Habsburg Queen Augusta the Square, who due to generations of inbreeding, was exactly 60 inches wide and 80 inches long, invents the queen-size bed. She later gave birth to twins. November 19, 1310, Lady Catherine de Snack invents the concept of snacking when she eats just a little bit. She went on to invent brunch, breakfast for dinner, and fries for the table. A true pioneer. February 21st, 1902, Sarah Anderson invents mixed nuts when she falls down a flight of stairs while carrying five precarious bowls of separated nuts. After the fall, she went nuts. <laughs> She later died from her injury. <laughs> February 14th, 1741, Lady Millicent Gregory becomes the first person in history to utter the phrase, it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> Cheers to you, my lady. <laughs> this has been Greatish Women of History. And I, I'm Jane Krakowski. Thank you, Jane Krakowski. You can see Jane on Name That Tune, two days on Fox. We'll be right back with James McAvoy. my guest tonight from Atonement, Atomic Blonde, and the X-Men series of instructional videos. <laughs> he now stars in a production of Cyrano de Bergerac. Please welcome James McAvoy! <laughs> nice to see you again. Thanks for being back. Thank you for coming. Uh, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Yes. Uh, I, 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 we, actually, we want to get to Cyrano de Bergerac, which is at BAM. Yes, okay. BAM Barbie Theater, starting on the on the fifth. Okay, uh, but before we do that, I got to talk to you about uh, perhaps uh, one of your greatest uh, appearances on the screen, which I did not know about until recently, is that you were on the Great British Bake Off, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, I was. You were on, but but we didn't know that. No. I didn't know that because yeah. I like the show, but I didn't know that because you were on the celebrity version. That for reasons that I don't understand, it's, it's, it's not a, in the United States. It's, uh, we do the celebrity version for a British-based charity called Stand Up to Cancer, and I think because we have that here, you do. We have that here. I don't know then why. So the whole thing that I was going to tell you is absolute nonsense. Um, I don't know why we don't have it here, but let's start a petition. Maybe we can make it happen. Power to the yes. people. Uh, yeah, but yeah, we need an extradition treaty, please, for the celebrity. But here's the thing: you, you, did you win? I won it. Yeah, you won. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. First of all, what's it like inside that tent? What's it feel like? What's the pressure like? Temperatures rising. There's, there's like, there's wheat flour everywhere. It looks like Scarface times ten. It's not good. You know the bit with Pacino and the coke. It's like yeah, that, yeah. but with flour. Um, it's sweaty, it's uh, tense. I, I, it's Does everybody feel the pressure, or is it like some people are cool? Were you cool? Well, I'm usually quite cool. I don't really feel nerves too much, and yet in there I felt quite tense. And even though it was just for charity, it's all for a good cause, it's all fun, nobody's really judging you harshly, and yet, yeah, you do. I mean, David Bedil, who's a great, uh, great comedian and writer but, and presenter back home, just wrote a book called Jews Don't Count, which is excellent. Uh, he was... Um, uh, he was there, and he was like quite up, 
upfront about the fact that he didn't care about bacon. Sure. He was just there for a good cause, raise some awareness, raise some money for charity, and doesn't care if he makes an absolute idiot of himself. And yet halfway through the second challenge, he was like, why am I on the verge of tears? <laughs> I'm so scared that I'm not going to be able to turn in my homework. So and we all, we all felt like that. But we also had Dame Kelly Holmes as well, who'd won like a gazillion gold medals for Great Britain, used to be in the army, the whole thing. And she was like, she was, she was pissed that I won. I'm pretty certain, anyway. She was lovely, but she was over Well, listen, this, this was, here was your showstopper. Was this your, your finale? Was this the thing you brought her home with? That was my snow leopard pina okay, colada this cake. This is a snow leopard. Is that, is that toasted coconut on the outside? That is, that is very much, that is toasted coconut. Look at that damn thing. Thank you. First of all, <laughs> if you ever decide to go on Tinder, this is the shot you have to use. No, not that. Him. You got to include him in it, too. Yeah, no one's going to swipe left on that, man. Oh, thank now, you. Um, what, did they think, what did they think of this? Uh, they thought it was really good, Paul. No um, soggy bottom. No soggy, no soggy bottom. bottom. No soggy bottom, thank you very much. Uh, Paul, uh, who weirdly lives across the road from a, a, cat, a, a wild cat reserve, uh, for, you know, endangered and, and, and injured animals and stuff, said that uh, the snow leopards had just given birth to some cubs and that I should come down because... And he kept saying this phrase, he kept saying, we can handle them, we can handle them. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I would have done it, but uh, I didn't have the time, but I'd love to go handle some cubs with Paul Hoban. No. But he said he was very impressed, but I did fess up and I said, listen, I was a, an apprentice confectioner for three years when I was uh, in acting so you, school. So they thought you were an amateur. They thought I was an amateur. I fessed up, but they cut it out of the whole show. So my So there are was... people who watched you win that who right now are learning <laughs> that yes. you were a ringer. Yes, I was a ringer. I was a wow. bad ringer. <laughs> that means they have to go take the money away from the charity now because you lied. I think they lie. do. Yeah, because I'm, of my lies, yeah, people have to suffer. Fault. It's your fault. Yeah. Now, um, at, at the moment, again, you're starring as uh, in the adaptation of Cyrano de Bergerac. Thank you. Yep. So, so you started in 2019. When did you get a sense that uh, this COVID thing might cause a bit of a hiccup in your production schedule? Oh man, every single I mean, they say it didn't touch down in Britain. I don't know, in March till March or something like that. But we could hear the coughing increasing night oh, on night no. on night on night on night and. Um, I remember sometime in sort of the middle of February, my, my wife said to me, like, hey, maybe you shouldn't do the stage door thing, because I'd always go to stage door, and there'd maybe be, Over you know... Over the fan sign and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There'd maybe be, you know, I don't know, 100 people or something there, and, you know, thousands, perhaps, one night. And, um... <laughs> uh, like, 75. And, um... <laughs> you go sign, 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 sign. She said, maybe you shouldn't do this with COVID. And, it's, and I was like, nah, don't worry about it. Anyway, that night, I go to the stage door, and the first person standing there, she goes, can you take the picture with my phone, please? And I was like, oh, of course, of course, of course. She's wearing a mask. And she's got a suitcase. And I go, oh, did you just get in? She went and coughed right on me. She says, yes, I just got off the plane. I was like, ah, I don't know if I should be doing this. <laughs> and that was the end of stage door. And I'm, even now I'm not doing stage door. Apologies to anybody who waits at stage door for like two hours going, is he still in the building? Because they tell you clearly he's left the building and yet there's people there two hours later on the off chance that you're going to come out and sign something. We're not allowed to. I'm really sorry. No. It'll come back. Uh, It'll so. come back. We have to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more James McAvoy. James McAvoy. Now, uh, you performed this just last week in your hometown of Glasgow, right? <laughs> yes. right? Yeah. And what, what, how are the audiences different in Glasgow as opposed to London's West End? They're, they were quite markedly different. The, the crowd in Scotland, I'd say, were louder. 
and uh, definitely more up for it and boisterous. They, the crowds in London were loving it and they're totally getting it. And um, But we were getting a lot more laughs in different places. Uh, and also, there was just weird stuff as well. There was a bit where I'm doing this really quiet, sort of romantic moment with Roxanne. And this guy up in the balcony just goes like, goes, James, James, we love you, James. <laughs> you're like, great. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Uh, it's great being a hometown boy done good. But, it, you know, it was, it, there was an element of going back to Glasgow, which was, was nice for me personally. It's not why we were there, but it was nice for me personally, because there was a bit of an outpouring of appreciation and love just for being somebody from Glasgow who's done well. And that was a nice thing to be in a room feeling. Now, as a, as a native... Oh, thanks. As a native Glaswegian, um, I, I'm just curious, as somebody who has, uh, like, I think the first time I interviewed you, I didn't realize that you had such a pronounced Scottish accent. I did not know. I'd seen you play either Americans or British people. Mm -hmm. And when you go home, do they go, you've changed? Yeah, like that, your vo your, uh, that accent is, you've lost your accent? Because to me, it's almost like a speech impediment. This, but to... <laughs> this noise that's coming out of my mouth that you don't understand very well, this uh, is seen in Glasgow as an aberration, uh, a capitulation, uh, a crossing of a line, Sure. Which is uh, which means you've that I've changed. Straight. I've changed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There you I've go. gone. I've gone well English. Now you've been acting. How how old were you first started performing? Uh, I think my uh, sixteen. Okay, so decades now you've been mm. acting. And do do you still get nervous before you go on on stage? Or on stage, are you still nervous, no. or is it sort of something click? Generally not. I mean, it was different. I guess with Sereno, we we were in a really confident place with Sereno. We so confident, in fact, that we didn't do a dress rehearsal. We instead announced it to the, crowd, the, the world that whoever turned up at the theatre, first come, first serve, would come and watch our dress rehearsal. So we played to an absolutely wow. packed, I think it was a thousand people watching us that night. And it was crazy. We were so certain that we had a tight show. We didn't know if people would like it or not. So I was extremely nervous that night. And at the beginning of the show, the curtain is down, the whole cast line up facing the audience, and then the curtain comes up. I'm facing the other way, facing this mirror, and I spend the first 15 minutes of the show doing so. And I get to see the entire audience, and I get to see our amazing cast just walk towards them in the dark as the lights go down. And it's, I, the very, very first performance, I guess I was nervous too, but I was so emotional, I cried my eyes out. Because it looked like they were just walking to their fate, I don't know. And um, I thought to myself, I haven't even uttered a line in this play yet, and I'm an emotional wreck. This does not <laughs> bode well. So I kind of got a hold of myself and whipped myself back into shape and looked at myself in the mirror for 15 minutes and then got on and done it. But um, it's all, honestly, it's one of my favourite moments in the whole show, is just watching her incredible... We've got an amazing cast in this show. They're really special. And I get to watch them in this mirror in backwards reflection for 15 minutes before I say a word. Well, we have to take a little bit of a break, but when we come back, I will ask James about his character... Cyrano de Bergerac. Stick around. Hey, everybody. We're back here with James McAvoy. And in the opening, they kind of lay out essentially what the stakes of mm. your character are and what the, who, who the, the major players are in the play. And the one thing that everybody knows about Cyrano, and here's a photo again from you, um, Here's a picture of you right there. Is that Cyrano's got this enormous uh, nose, yes. almost like a grotesquely large nose. And the director did not ask you to change your face in any way. No, he didn't. <laughs> no. 
No, no. Do you take that as a compliment to your acting skill? <laughs> or an indictment? Um, uh, I've never asked him about that, actually. Yeah, yeah I'm like, oh, yeah, it's some, like, time, it's yeah. some crazy, like, concept that he's got with no nose, and he's like, no, actually, we're fine with what you got. <laughs> oh, so it's not a crazy concept. Um, yeah, no, he was just, I said to him, when he said, how do you feel about doing Cyrano? And I was like, oh, great. And uh, he went, I don't want to do it with a nose. And I was like, ah, oh, isn't that about a guy with a big old nose? And he says, nah, it's about a guy who's objectified. And, uh, and he says, in, in more than that, it's about three people who are objectified. And the minute you stick on a big old fake nose, you just, you just sort of reduce it to something fake. And, but then he extended it. And it was like, well, if we don't have a nose, why have we got swords? If we don't have swords, why have we got hats with big feathers in. If we don't have that sort of accoutrement, then why are we pretending to be musketeers? Let's just take it all back to its base thing. You're a soldier. What does a soldier do? He kills people and he's obsessed with poetry. Just play that. Play that with all its truths to you. And that's what he did for the whole show. He's just let us be us. Masterno is pretty much just me. Massively amplified in terms of his insecurity, his anger, his violence, his loneliness and his longing. But we're all pretty much, by and large, just playing ourselves. And for the people out there, I think most people know the story of Cyrano. Yeah. Like, the, the basic story of Cyrano, one large element of it, is that uh, Roxanne and Christiane are both these sort of beautiful figures who are uh, seemingly in love with each other, but mm -hmm. the poetry that Christiane uses to woo Roxanne is actually from the mind of Cyrano. Yes. Okay, that's the basic, that's the basic idea of that particular, you might say, game part of, of yeah, the story. Yeah, it's, it's one of the original love triangles, and it's almost slightly farcical at times as being mm. really tragic too. I think one of the things that we highlight in this production that Martin Crimp, our amazing writer, has highlighted, and Jamie certainly has as well, is that as fun as it is, and as romantic as it is, and as tragic it is that, that certain people die in it, um, <laughs> it's, it's also actually quite manipulative and, and abusive of uh, Roxanne and the way the two guys treat her, whether they love her or not, and whether they're both lacking or not, and whether they're both uh, insecure about their lack of uh, lexical intelligence or a massive nose or whatever it is, they actually mistreat her to an epic degree. And the play has always punished them for that because it's not her who dies, it's, I'll spoil it for you, it's the two guys who die. And, uh, but you somehow miss all that behind all the pageantry and the, the lexical gymnastics and the joy and the panache, this word that yeah. Rostand originally invented, panache, which is brilliant and shouldn't be ignored and should be embraced, but it somehow becomes too much about panache and you forget the fact that these are people who kill people and who uh, mistreat this beautiful, incredible woman who's objectified for just her beauty when she's actually so much more. And Cyrano himself has so much anger so much anger. Thank you. Cheers. Um, Which is something that, that's something that I, I know from loving the play, but from your performance, too, there's so much rage there in that character. He's really, really angry. He's, um, but I think his anger is it's a response to the way the world treats him, but I think also his anger is a mechanism by which he keeps the world at bay. There's a whole amazing bit where he has to pretend to be someone else to buy time for the two lovers to go and get married. And he pretends to be this man visiting from the moon. And, um, and it's quite absurd and it's a little bit surreal, but through it, by the end of it, he starts to realize and, and, and examine his own life and his own existence and realizes that when he's on the moon, this moon man, he can look at the world and the world is perfect, but he can only see the world as a beautiful, perfect place if he's removed from it and at a distance from it. The minute he's in it and with it, 
He has to he has to live in the horrible world that it actually is, with pain and mistreatment, where women are mistreated and slavery exists and, and people treat people badly. But if he keeps himself distant from everybody, he can pretend it's a beautiful place. He can be the poet that creates the beauty. And that's partly what his anger is for as well, I think, is to, as much as he longs for Roxanne and longs for this normal life, whatever that means, he is, he's too scared to actually take it. Because that's the thing as well about the fake nose. You see so many of these fake noses, and uh, really, I'm always like, that's someone's jam. Someone would absolutely take you to bed with that nose and love you and fall in love with you and get their kink on every night because of, <laughs> because of your nose, you know? You yeah. will find that person. And, um, and the fake nose, it sort of almost diminishes the sadness of his lack of self-worth that he feels for himself, regardless of what the world puts on him, you know? Well, James, it was lovely to have Thanks. you back. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> Beautifully said. Thank Beautifully you. said. Cyrano de Bergerac opens Tuesday at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. James McAvoy, everybody. This has been The Late Show Poncho with Stephen Colbert. If you're enjoying The Late Show Poncho, leave us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Watch The Late Show with Stephen Colbert weeknights at 11.35, 10.35 Central on CBS and Paramount+. Plus. And for more exclusive Late Show content, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Late Show on YouTube.